Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. Listen in on my chat with Megan Gomez, Executive Director at Theater of the Oppressed, New York City. The organization uses a unique theatrical style to advance social justice through participatory performances. I sat down with Megan after the two of us co-presented at the Actors Connection in New York City in November of 2019, where we both told of our personal journeys. Hers takes her from Pennsylvania to Colombia, Italy, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and back to the East Coast. Join us. So here we are at Theater of the Oppressed, New York City, and it was so lovely just meeting you at the Actors Connection. I think that a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the Theater of the Oppressed process, but for those who aren't, Mm -hmm. could you tell us how that got started? Sure, and and it's lovely to meet you too. Um, Yeah, so Theater of the Oppressed methodology was created in the 60s by a man named Augusto Boal in Brazil. And he was writing that book, Theater of the Oppressed, in response to Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire that had come out the year before. And Theater of the Oppressed is really thinking about what Pedagogy of the Oppressed had to say, particularly around education, and really applying the same ideas uh, to theater. And the real crux of that, just to have some context, is that Paulo Freire talked about how our education system was based in kind of a banking system, where uh, teachers had the knowledge and they deposited back into the students and they were expecting those students to be able to give it back to them so they could withdraw that knowledge again. And that was that's kind of how the education system is set up. Where Paulo Freire was talking about a more dialogue approach to theater is really, or to education, is really thinking about how can educators and their students be on the same playing field and that the education is really about asking thoughtful questions and be engaging in a dialogue and understanding that students have just as much to teach their teachers as teachers have to teach their students. And so really thinking about disrupting the hierarchy of education as a whole. And so um, Augusta Boal took that idea and um, also through his own kind of findings through theater director, like as a theater director, really thinking about how we can use theater not just as an art form but also as a language and a language to communicate what we are experiencing through our lived experiences and so he was taking this idea that we work in a hierarchical context and that theater is oftentimes in a hierarchical context and how do we remove that and make it so based in play we can experiment with the stories of our lives to create plays about those experiences and then using those plays to actually provide an opportunity for intervention where your spectators who are watching the scene actually become spect actors and can transform the scene and find a different ending. Um, And in this way, we can rehearse for the revolution. So there are a couple of words there. So yeah. what is a spect actor? So a spect actor is your audience who are traditionally spectators and really thinking about the word spect actor as somebody who is active in the room and part of the performance. Um, so they have an opportunity to actually become a part of the play. And this was a way of really disrupting the very normal theater experience that you have. You have actors and then you have audience members and that audience members are passive. And it's turning audience members who are passive into part of the acting experience. So that's what 
that term is. And any of these terms, I didn't make them up. Mr. Bowal did. There's another role that you were talking about earlier at the Actors Connection, and that's the Joker. Right. Yeah. So what is the Joker? So the Joker is the facilitator. They are the person who is generally conducting the rehearsal and working with a group of actors to create the play. They function somewhat as a director, but it's always about making sure to continue to uplift the work of the actors, not like really forcing down their hand as a director to be like, well, now we're gonna make pretty art. And then the Joker is also the person who facilitates the dialogue with the audience. So anytime you have one of these forum theater performances, which is one of the types of theater of the oppressed and most widely practiced, in forum theater, when the audience members transform into spect actors and try to find a different ending to a play, the Joker is the person who will then engage the audience in a dialogue and ask questions like, you know, what did we see this, this person try? You know, was it successful? Why or why not? And really asking, do you think that this solution could work for everyone? And why or why not? Um, mainly because some of the things that people will try will inevitably be part of their own lived experience and might not be the experience of the, the actors in the show. And so really trying to be clear about how even any of the solutions that are proposed can also be challenging for different populations. And, and one of the reasons for calling them a joker is like, as like in a deck of cards, the joker has no suit. And so the joker is really there to be impartial and to be able to help anyone who is having this conversation. Their job is not to have an opinion in the matter. They're just there to ask the questions. Interesting. Sounds a little bit like journalism, actually. Yeah, in some ways. And, you know, one of the theater of the oppressed methodologies is actually newspaper theater, which is straight up taking headlines and taking stories from newspapers and then creating a play out of them. So if somebody wants to actually see and experience one of these performances, is there a way for them to do that? Absolutely. So Theater of the Oppressed NYC, we do performances anywhere between once and twice a month, sometimes more or less, depending if it's like near the holidays or I think we we try never to do anything in August because nobody's around. But generally about twice a month, there's something to see. So last night we had a performance at the Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. And that was, we have a a troupe, an acting troupe that runs out of Housing Works, which is um, their They're working at the intersection of homelessness and also people who've been diagnosed with HIV. And so those those actors actually did a performance around the New York Housing Authority and their their experience trying to access those uh, resources. We have another performance that's coming up on December 4th and that's with one of our youth justice troops in Red Hook in Brooklyn. And I believe their play is following the premise that a new mall has opened up in Red Hook and the the ways in which they feel unwelcome in that new space even though it is their home so just thinking about kind of the ways in which gentrification and also just like shopping while being black can present a problem just for people actually trying to access the things that are even in their their home neighborhoods Um, so those are the those are the things that are happening before the end of the year and then we will have a whole roster of performances um, in the spring. And that will, all the information will be on our website, which is tonyc.nyc. So how did you get into this work? 
it's been a long road. I started actually, I, I started down the road of social justice theater as a whole because I read the book Theater of the Oppressed in College. And I read the book based on a recommendation of my theater history professor, uh, JP, and she gave it to me because I was interested in political theater and didn't know a lot about it. And she also knew that I was feeling particularly frustrated with my own experience at the school. And my experience was just that like, I, I think that I fundamentally knew that I was a theater maker and I was trying really hard to be a theater maker in an acting program. And that didn't really fit. Actors are all about that you are a product that needs to be able to fit into a type, into a box, and you need to be able to market yourself in terms of the language that people already understand. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. And, and Montclair was a, a really good program for doing that. But I fundamentally, like internally knew that, that was not my path. So reading the book Theater of the Oppressed really opened up a world of a social justice theater that I didn't know existed before that and really gave me the vocabulary that I actually had in my heart and mind but didn't have the words to express. So that was really the start of the journey for me. And, and and through a long story, which I won't get super deep into, this reading this book and also with the frustrations of my theater program and also kind of with the catalyst of being in a workshop with a, a performance artist named Tim Miller, I actually made the decision to drop out of school publicly as part of a performance to the theater department as part of this workshop with Tim Miller. And it was one of the one of those turning points in my life and what I always attribute as my first intervention. So when we when I think of of the world now, particularly because I think of it through the lens of theater of the oppressed, like I think of every day as an opportunity to create change. And that was the first time in my life where I had like really just like stood my ground and followed my own instincts and really just went towards what I felt was my path. And when I dropped out of school, I was very lucky. I was able to secure an apartment in New York City for January 1st, and I moved here. And I found my first job in New York City based on just talking to somebody on a bus who was having a bad day and needed to hold auditions because they had an actor who dropped out of their show. And it turned out what they were looking for was a 40-year-old Jewish man, which, you know, is a bit out of my range, but it turned out they were also looking for an assistant director. And so just through the process of talking to somebody on a bus, I got my first job in New York. And then, and then I spent three years in New York City. I worked at Abrams Art Center as their registrar, so just registering people for classes. But I was very lucky to be there at a time when uh, there was an amazing theater director uh, there who was able to mentor me. And then I was also just able to create my own work in the city. And then because of the fact that I had dropped out of college, I didn't have a college degree. And the job that I had was not gonna help me move up into another position. And so I thought, what better time to just quit my job and move to South America and live in, in Bogota for a year. And so I'm Colombian American and I have dual citizenship. Um, but I had never lived there as an adult. I had only been there when I was really, really young. And so it was an opportunity to get to know my grandparents and also basically just take a gap year to travel and write and do yoga and just kind of, you know, do the soul searching that I really needed at that point in my life. And through that soul searching, I ended up discovering that the National University in Bogota was hosting uh, an encuentro through the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics from, uh, hosted by NYU. 
And so that was an opportunity to, to really jump into a lot of different art makers who were doing the kind of work that I cared about. And one of those people was Michael John Garces from Cornerstone Theater in Los Angeles. And so that was how I met him. And through that was like, that was my first experiencing experience of finding a theater company that was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. Because one of the reasons I left New York City, besides not having a degree, was that there wasn't any organization that I actually wanted to work for. And that was that was hard for me. It was just kind of like, I didn't feel like the job I wanted existed yet. And so, yeah, so I, I connected with them and I did some work in Los Angeles. And through that work, I actually was able to connect with a theater company in my hometown of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who had actually done work with Cornerstone back in the 90s. And so I ended up working with them for a couple of years before becoming the founding member of a charter arts middle school in Allentown, discovered that school teaching was not my jam and really just started too early in the morning and cared way too much about the things that I don't, which are grades and like grading middle school students on how good of an actor they are just felt really, really in like contradiction to my values. And, and it also just wasn't the space for me to grow. And very luckily after that year ended is when I got the job description uh, from my friends at Cornerstone for this job in Albuquerque, New Mexico at Working Classroom. And that's where I spent the next five years of my life doing uh, teaching, Theater of the Oppressed. I also taught clowning and devising and script work and um, improvisation. And then I was also able to hire guest artists from all over the world to come and take and teach other classes that I was then able to take as a student. So that was a really great opportunity for me to be kind of in community with the young people that I was working with. And while I was in Albuquerque, I also was able to do some training with La Mama and, and met David Diamond, who is one of the directors for La Mama Umbria in Italy. And he convinced me to come out to Italy to do some training. And it was really, I was very fortunate. It was at the time when Moises Kaufman was going to be one of the instructors who I had met before because he's actually attributed as being one of the founders of the theater program at Working Classroom. And so it was an opportunity to re-meet him and continue to do that work and then also do some really fantastic work with some Italian directors, some other New York directors, um, someone from New Zealand who was amazing, and also get to know David. And David was one of the reasons I ended up here. So basically, Last June, I got an email from David, who's a good friend of the Theater of the Oppressed NYC and a good friend of Katie, the, the founder and my predecessor. And David emailed me and said, Megan, do you know this job is available? I think you'd be great for it. In fact, I've already recommended you, so like you should apply. And I had never been interested in an executive director's position. It's a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. But I had said to somebody within the months leading up to that, that one of the only organizations that would pull me back to New York was Theater of the Oppressed NYC. And so for me, it was kind of, it felt like a calling, like it felt like I had to. And I applied and it was actually through the application process, which was very long, it was three months. And it was three months and four interviews. And my fourth interview was with, it was three hours long and it was with about 20 people. And it was everyone from board of directors 
down to volunteers and really being able to be in a room with all of the community or like members of the community that represented each of its parts made me understand that this was an organization that was really interested in being very self-reflective in making sure that they were leading from their values um, and it helped me feel really supported that the, the places in my resume as it were that didn't necessarily help me be qualified for this job, that this was a place that was interested in training me up as well. And so for all of those reasons, and because I think that the work that is being done here is really incredible, I left my job at Working Classroom and started here. And it was one of those kind of crazy experiences. I left my job at Working Classroom on November 9th of 2018, and then I started here on November 12th. So I was still jet lagged when I started my position. <laughs> incredible story. Who's David? What's, what, what's David Diamond. Last? Okay. Yeah, David Diamond. And he he's an amazing, amazing man. He has been a big supporter of 2NYC for a long time and a friend of Katie's. And then he also, he was the he was someone who was really integral in helping us get this space. So the space that we're sitting in right now, we actually own it. That is amazing. Yeah. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you will not be priced out of this space. No. So like <laughs> and this and and we were able to buy this space through an air rights deal that he happened to know about because he was part of the city board that helped kind of clear um, this air rights deal, which basically the building that we're sitting in right now was only zoned for 30 stories and they wanted to build 14 extra stories. And the way that the city agreed to give them their extra stories was if they provided one floor for a nonprofit theater specifically. And so um, because of the fact that everybody's getting priced out of this area. And it was not an easy process. My predecessor, Katie, is a really tenacious person. She worked really hard for it. And like over five years, there were plenty of times when it seemed like it was never going to happen, but then it seemed like maybe it was going to happen. And after a long time and a hard fight, she ended up buying this space for $20,000. Kudos to her. Yeah, yeah. No, it was an amazing accomplishment. And also one of the reasons that I felt comfortable accepting the position. Because I think that one of the things that concerns me most about the nonprofit sector is its instability. And part of that instability in New York City is rent. And the fact that rent is constantly on the rise. And so by having a space in the theater district that is ours, and we are actually landlords, we have an office on our floor that is gonna be up for rent soon. By having the space, it means that Theater of the Oppressed NYC will have a very long life, regardless of the ebbs and flows of the economy and, and the, the rent hikes that happen here in the city. So what kind of work happens in this space? Does the public ever come in? This is for more of the preparation. So this is our office and we have, you know, we have a staff, uh, an office staff of about seven people. And then we have about 14 facilitators on top of that. And we do trainings here. We conduct a lot of meetings. We have a space that's called the community room and that's where we'll conduct meetings or do uh, joker trainings or really anything else to help prepare. But we conduct our rehearsals and our performances off site. And that's specifically because since we are working in a lot of the different communities in the different boroughs of, of New York City, um, it's important to us that we perform in those communities. So when we work with Housing Works, we work in the housing 
Housing Works books. We perform at the Housing Works bookstore. In Red Hook, we'll perform at like the Red Hook Initiative. In Harlem, we perform with Ali Forney Center. Um, so it's really important to us that um, because this is about being in community with people, that we actually go to them. Are there any projects coming up that, that you're really excited about? So many. The big, like, there's a couple of big projects that are coming. One is that I'm actually going to be able to start jokering in the spring and be able to joker my own troupe along with one of our longtime jokers um, named Mike Gonzalez. And he's been with the organization since 2014. And that the troupe that I'm going to be jokering is with LaGuardia Community College and Fortune Society. We're actually doing a joint partnership between all three of us, and that's a first for us, doing a partnership between a group of organizations. And the reason for that is that Fortune Society and LaGuardia Community College are actually only a 10-minute walk from one another. And so this is going to be an opportunity for, for the people of Long Island City to be more connected to both of those places, for the, for the people at Fortune Society to be able to actually step foot on a college campus and feel like they belong and for those people at, at LaGuardia Community College to be able to also access the resources at Fortune Society that they might not know about and Fortune Society is all about working with people who've been formerly incarcerated and they've already been doing a lot of really great work together so I'm really excited to be able to be there on the ground floor to help with the jokering and creating original content so that's for me personally a really exciting thing about 2020. Another thing that we're we're un, we're going we're undergoing at the moment is preparations for writing a book. So for our 10-year anniversary, we're hoping to publish a a manual for our work. So really being able to highlight the the methodology itself, how we practice it, uh, samples of lesson plans a glossary of vocabulary terms, how we work with partners, the history of our work, and really being able to codify the model and be able to share it out. So that way, you know, we can use it for internal purposes to help train our jokers and to train our office staff, but then also it's going to be a resource that we can share out for all of the practitioners that are that are practicing worldwide and also hopefully in like a, a second edition being able to actually bring more of the practitioners in to, to, to include more more of the methodology that is being practiced all over the world. So it's a big project and it might be a crazy thing to take on in my first year. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I am really excited about it. And we have a lot of really amazing people on our staff, including founding members of the organization. And so for me, it was about making sure that we didn't get to our 10-year anniversary without having like a real document of our work. And I do think that it's the kind of thing that's actually going to be really impactful for the field as well. Um, and we have a lot to say also about how we try to apply our work to our administrative side of things because we do believe that it's part of the art making. This sounds fascinating and exhausting <laughs> at the same time. Listening to this is a little, is that, <laughs> uh -huh. and so what I really want to know is, what drives you? What 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 makes you decide to keep going to move from Albuquerque to New York, with only two or three days to recover from the jet lag and start a new job? Yeah, I mean, it's the people. It's always the people. I'm I'm really drawn in by work, people who are doing work 
that I think is really important and that I think that really walks in its values. Um, one of my challenges with the nonprofit field as a whole is that I think that it's actually really hard to uphold the values in your mission statement because of the ways in which nonprofits ask you to exploit people. Um, it's just that it's a, it's a severely underpaid sector and it's full of people who left really, really high levels of education but are making really low wages. And I also think that it, it can really be influenced because of it because it's being modeled after the the for-profit sector there's this kind of push towards growth at all costs and this push to like do things no matter how much time it takes and and you you re rely a lot on free labor of people and so for me like that has been a really major frustration of the field and it's not just the nonprofit field it's the theater field and it's the social justice field that these are all fields that are constantly constantly asking more of people than they're actually able to pay for and so for me to be able to be in organizations that are actually walking in those values, that are trying to pay people for their work, that are trying to pay those living wages, and that are also open to their own accountability to making sure that there are, that, that there are internal checks for, you know, so it's not just like executive director says all and then that is the way it is. Like being in spaces like that are really inspiring and I think that like they're worth putting all of your time and energy behind even when it's exhausting. I do think that to do this work you have to believe in what you're doing and, and the organization that you're working for because otherwise like you will kill yourself. Um, and it, it's a it, the nonprofit field is is notorious for burnout. Wow. I mean this sounds like an ideal place to work. What's a typical day like then? Um, how, how there you, are no typical days. <laughs> I mean, like, so how do you check in with each other? Sure. Um, so we actually do have a fairly well-codified method for checking in. We, anytime a new employee signs on, we actually send them for training at the management center, which is a really great resource to get some best practices and in, in, in leading with an equitable lens. And so check-ins are a part of our work process. So. There's some staff members who I check in with every other week, and there's some staff members that I check in with every week. And that's an hour or a half hour, depending on who it is and, and what the needs are, that we will always come together. And in those check-ins, there's really specific questions about like, these are the things I'm working on, this is what I'm backburnering, this is what I need your input on, and this is what you could do to help me do my job better. And so to have that as like a standard practice is really great because I do think that one of the challenges with an executive directorship is to constantly actually that your staff is the people who see you the least because a lot of your job is being out in the field and, and, and being at meetings and giving interviews and making sure that you are tap dancing and hoop jumping for the right people. And all of that work is really important, but like that work only functions has a function if you're also supporting your staff. So for me, that that's a really important piece of it. We also have a standing staff meeting every week and we never cancel it. And if we cancel it, there's a really, really good reason why. It's either like there's somebody in a training or you know whatever, and like anybody who can make it during that time 
does. And so like that, we try to kind of keep that as sacred. So there are these built-in ways in our calendar uh, to make sure that we're always checking in with one another. And then there's there's a, a, one of the things that I was really kind of astounded by when I got here was there's a system for everything here. So everything from a food order request to stuff going on in the space to rehearsal reports, like everything has a form. There's a spreadsheet for everything. And like evaluations are done, you know, with with like a very specific calendar. So there's a lot of different ways in which accountability is built into the model, which is really, really helpful. This sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that our founder uh, is has read that uh, foundational book, mm. Pedagogy of, mm -hmm. of the Oppressed, and refers to it in the work that he does. So now I'm starting to understand why certain things happen with us the way yeah. they do. We have standing meetings too. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're important because if you don't schedule something, it's never going to happen. And like, and it, and I think you know, we also in this sector and, and a lot of the sectors that people work in is that like you're always busy all of the time. And so for me, like the the like, it's about making sure it's on the calendar. And like, if you've planned time for it, it will happen. I don't know if that's a pedagogy of the oppressed thing, but I do think it's good work practice. And sometimes, you know, you realize you don't need the meeting and then you can release that time and that always feels good too. I also hear your passion for moving the, the social justice needle. Mm -hmm. And I know that in what we just did earlier today, you talked about an example of that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that again? Sure. <laughs> so. So the, the main practice that we do here is forum theater. And forum theater is really thinking about those personal interventions. But we also do legislative theater. And that's becoming a bigger, bigger, and bigger piece of what we do. And legislative theater is thinking less about what an individual can do to change their circumstances, and more about examining the policies and structures that are in place that are creating that inequity or creating the oppressive system to happen and thinking about what can we do as a policy or a structure that can actually impact those things. So a really clear example that I give a lot is something that happened before I got here. It was with a, some of the work that we were doing with council member Carlos Menchaca. And that was because we were creating a play based around one of our actors' personal stories around being a trans woman who needed to call the police because of a domestic abuse situation. And when the police came to her door and asked for ID, and her ID did not match her presentation, they used it as an opportunity to search her apartment. And when they searched her apartment and found syringes, which she was using for hormones, they saw it as drug paraphernalia and arrested her. And so we were asking the audience, like, what could we do that would change the situation? Like, what is the policy that could help? And part of it was, it came back to the ID. And it came back to having an ID that represents who you are. And so through the, the brainstorming of the audience, what came, what Carlos Menchaca, who was in the room and who was working on the New York City ID at the time, what, took, what he took away from that meeting was that the, the suggestion was is that people should be able to mark the gender that they identify as, not necessarily what's on their birth certificate. Because before that, you, it required proof of sex change surgery in order to put the gender that you identify with. And so 
absent of that, you couldn't do it. And one of the reasons for doing this is because trans women of color are some of the people who are most likely to be harassed by the police because of their ID. And so just by changing this one thing, we're hoping that like that those people feel more safe in New York City. When did that happen? 2017. So yeah, that's one example. Um, an example more recently is we're working with Fortune Society and LaGuardia on issues around parole. And so one of the other examples that I gave today is um, how we're constantly experimenting with our own form of legislative theater. And so where in times past, we've always had policymakers really kind of at the forefront of sifting through what audience members have proposed and then kind of coming up with a proposal from that. We let the audience members go directly into the scene and then like wave a magic wand to create a new policy. And then we were able to see what a new policy would do to a situation to play it out. So that's another form of, of kind of looking at what we can do to change the systems. And so some of the things that were proposed that night were specifically around how do we help people who've been incarcerated and are dealing with life on parole. Because there's a lot of different ways that you can be out of prison and still be incarcerated. And that's what we were really looking at. And one of the ways that we're looking at it, hopefully for a future project, that we're in the process of kind of managing and planning, is that we're actually hoping to work through the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice and a program that they have called Neighborhood Stat, looking at some of the housing units in the New York Housing Authority and actually working with residents from those units to create plays about their, their residents. And then with the plays actually being able to push it towards legislative theater and thinking about how those housing units can actually have a pot of about $50,000 to actually create change within their own housing unit to make them feel more safe and make their lives better. So that's something that we're hoping is on the docket for 2020 and it's all about whether or not the funding comes through. So we'll see. And if it doesn't come through, we'll figure it out another way. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time out. It's Friday. It is Friday. And the, and the sun has set. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here we are because I think both of us, you know, feel this this work. So thank you so much for granting the interview. Oh, of course. Thank here. you for your and, time. Yeah, you're welcome. You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Learn more about us at cpcommunities.org. Do you know of any great creative placemaking projects? Reach out. We love to hear from you. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.